interesting, isn't it? This uh, summer stuff that we have going on this summer. For those of you who don't know me yet, I'm Tanner. I'm the other half of the Tandy Tandem. Uh, I don't know whether I'm the more serious one or the more goofy one, but my name's Tanner. I'm glad to get to know you. I think it was Tozer who said, uh, Christians don't say lies, they sing them. And that's some pretty serious stuff we just sang tonight. And I'm all for lightening up this summer and having a good time. Don't get me wrong, if any of you know me well, then you know that I love to have a good time. But those are big words, guys. And this is a holy, holy Bible that we read from tonight and that we study from. And so I just want to make it really clear that uh, as much fun as I hope we have tonight, and as much as I enjoy being with you, and as much as I love laughing, praise God for humor. Let's keep laughing. Those are real serious words we sang tonight. And if, uh, if you sang those without thinking about them or meaning them, maybe you need to repent. Words said, wash me, Savior, or I die. And that's, a, that's a big deal. And I, these first three weeks have been wonderful, haven't they? We've taken a couple weeks uh, to learn and grow and go play in Kirk Park. Last week with the high school group was great. Had a great time playing hide-and-go-seek. Who didn't have fun doing that, right? No one found Matt in the uh, ball rack in the gym. I had a blast. But I don't want to lose sight of the fact that we're in a war. A real serious war. A war for our lives and a battle. And the, uh, the summer is no time to draw back and retreat. But mark it, believers and non-believers... If you choose to do that, the enemy will not let up. And I just want you to be very aware that this summer is not a time to let off the gas pedal. (laughs) Okay? Those words we sang are big. They're big words. And with that, I'd like you to take a minute to think about them. Nate, why don't you put those up on the screen for me one more time? Lots of words that we sing are big. And I appreciate Andy picking these songs. I think they're good songs. Uh, All songs, most songs that these guys choose to sing are big. Uh, They're real. I appreciate them, Andy, your choice of songs. But let's look at the words. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded sides which flows be of sin the double cure. It saves from wrath and it makes me pure. If you haven't been washed in the blood of Christ tonight, that's a really, really serious thing. This has nothing to do with the lesson that I'm going to teach tonight. I just wanted you guys to be aware of that. Okay? I love you guys. I love laughing. Don't get me wrong. I just wanted to remind you that we're in a war. Those of you who haven't been here yet this summer, or those of you who have been here every week this summer, or those of you who aren't believers, or those of you who are believers, you're in a war. Okay? You're in a battle. First week, uh, Andy shared a devotion about the heart. Second week, Austin shared, did a real good job, shared out Matthew 6. Reminded us not to worry. And then we filled out that goal sheet. Some of you guys were here when you did that goal sheet. How's that going for you so far? Good? You had a good start on it? Good. And then last week, we combined with a high school group, John Klein, Saucer, and Steph, Robertus, and a couple of high schoolers shared their testimonies. I thought they did a tremendous job. God was really glorified through those testimonies, and I was blessed. 
Now it's time to get on with our series. We're going to start a series this summer, like Annie mentioned, called B. Okay, B, or as uh, one member suggested, Beauty and the Bees, that we call it. But I think we're going to stick with B. <laughs> B what? B what? Well, be patient for now. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Why don't you gals pass out those uh, sheets? I wanted to have you guys have a sheet to follow along with me tonight because uh, we're going to cover a fair amount. And you won't be able to retain it all. Therefore, it's uh, shall hold up your Bible, not to brag, but to show by your notes. What are all those notes that were in it? Okay, it's good that we give these, <laughs> these guys, we give you these notes to you guys so you can hold on to them, so you can study them, so you can reflect back. And uh, anybody know where the word beatitude came from? Why do we call them beatitudes? We decided to study these long before we even decided, uh, long before I even knew what the word beatitude meant. Anybody know what it is? At the top of your sheet there, the word means, uh, or it comes from a Latin word which means beatus or beatus. <clears throat> means blessed. What does this mean? It means we are, have a blessed attitude. Someone want to close those two doors in the back there so we can hear with the high schoolers coming in? Thank you. Blessed attitude. I'm just going to throw this challenge out to you guys. Uh, if you guys want to memorize Matthew 5 and be here consistently this summer, I have a special prize for you at the end of the summer. That's good to put Scripture in memory. The psalmist says, how can a young man or a young woman, uh, how can a young person keep them their way pure? By keeping it according to your word. I've hidden your word in, your, in my heart that I might not sin against you. Matthew 5 is a good one to commit to memory. And if you choose to commit that to memory, and be here consistently this summer, we want to... Uh, reward you with the prize at the end of the summer. So keep that in mind. We'll remind you of that again. I want to start with the Bible tonight. What we're going to do, think broad picture, and then we're going to narrow in. Okay, we don't want to miss the forest for the tree. We want to take a look at what we're really doing. What am I holding here tonight? This is the very Word of God. Okay, and I said I'd take this very seriously, and I hope you do too. What is this? God says it's His breath. God breath. In fact, here's the picture he gives us. That's a word that Paul uses to describe what we have here tonight. Sorry, buddy. God's breath. I'll read you a poem. You guys, are, I don't want to sound like a broken record. I've read this before, but I really believe it's a, a good way to describe the Bible. This book contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. That's ironic. That's what we're talking about tonight. Happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy. Its precepts are binding. Its histories are true. And its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be safe. And practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct me, food to sustain me, and comfort to cheer me. It's the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass the soldier's sword and the Christian's charter. Here paradise is restored, heaven opened, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, my good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, faithfully, frequently, and prayerfully. It is given, it is given to you in this life, will be opened in judgment, and will be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility will reward the greatest laborer and condemn all who taf- trifle with its sa- sacred com- excuse me condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents i don't know who wrote that but it's uh, 
I think it's pretty accurate. It's a big deal what we're looking at tonight. And praise God we can come in this room and study it together. Amen? Amen. Amen. Or take this poem by John Burton. Holy Bible, book divine, precious treasure, thou art mine. Mine to teach me whence I came. Mine to teach me what I am. Thank you, Lord, for revealing your word. We wouldn't, do you realize that we would not know anything about who God is apart from this? The Bible claims to be and is the very Word of God. It's like I said, God breath. It is God breathed. Tonight, we're not going to take the whole Bible. We're going to focus in on Matthew. We're going to narrow it down a little bit more. Matthew breaks 400 years of canonical silence. God doesn't speak, uh, at least not in written form, to us for 400 years. I want you to turn to the last book of the Old Testament. Turn to Malachi. You might know who the or how the... Old Testament ends. Say again. A curse. Let's look at Malachi 4 and verse 6. I'm going to read it to you. And He will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction or smite the land with a curse, some versions say. That's something, isn't it? 40 years of silence after that. And God's people await a coming Messiah. So flip over to our text tonight, Matthew chapter 5. Just go to the next book in your Bible. Go to Matthew chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and when He had sat down, His disciples came to Him. And He opened His mouth and taught them in saying, Blessed. How's the first great sermon in the New Testament open? With a blessing. Years of silence. The Messiah opens his mouth in his first great sermon and he says, Blessed. It's a sermon on the mount, and it's uh, Christ had been pretty quiet before this. He'd chosen not to speak up a lot. He'd done a fair amount of miracles, a fair amount of healing, but he hadn't really opened up his mouth. And then we come to this. This grand piece of Scripture that spans three chapters. And uh, you would not believe the amount that has been written on this. If we look back through history, you would not believe the amount that's been written just on the Sermon on the Mount. Let's see what some people have said about it. W. Perkins says this, It may justly be called the key of the whole Bible. For here Christ openeth the sum of the Old and New Testaments. This is an important piece of Scripture we get to study this summer. Really important. How fortunate we are to get to study this. MacArthur says it this way, Here is the manifesto of the new monarch who ushers in a new age with a new message. This is a big deal. I just want you guys to realize that. All Scripture is a big deal, but what we get to study tonight and the rest of summer is incredible. This is a piece of Scripture that is phenomenal. I cannot wait to study it with you. Before we talk about exactly what the Sermon on the Mount is, I want to talk about what it's not. We're going to dispel some faulty views first. What it isn't. Well, it's not a social gospel. It's not just principles for men to bring down the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God on earth. 
I was at Costco the other day, and uh, I was checking out, and this fella had a medicine bag, and it had a cross on it. So my brother-in-law asked him, hey, what's up with uh, that thing? What, what's the symbolism behind it? Why do you wear it? And he said, well, I'm a, a Christian Indian. And I believe, I don't care what race or background or ethnicity you're from, I believe that you can uh, be a born-again believer. That's why we see that uh, God promises people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. But what this fellow went on to describe to me was anything but Christianity. More closer resembles what some people have taken the Sermon on the Mount done and done a social gospel with it. They want the teachings and the morality of Jesus, but not the Christ behind them. Okay, the Sermon on the Mount is so much more than that. So much more than just morality. It's so much more than just a social gospel. Uh, This arose quite a long time ago. And along with it came a lot of thinking that said the world's getting better and better and better. And it's progressively, we're improving. uh, But with several world wars behind us, and uh, with what's going on in Turkey and with what's going on around the world in sex slave trade and abortion, Uh, not a lot of people believe that anymore. So this isn't a view that's held to as widely. Besides, we see that no man, no man or woman can rightly live the Sermon on the Mount, particularly the Beatitudes unaided. Two, some people have said it's merely an exposition on the Mosaic Law. At the time Christ is speaking, a lot of what He does is say, uh, you've heard it said, but I say to you. A lot of times what He's doing, not just here, and not even as much here as some other places in Scriptures, but he's refuting and contradicting the Pharisees. And he's explaining what the law really meant. And Christ does do that here. He does give us an exposition on the Mosaic Law, but it's so much more. To do that would neglect the Beatitudes. Uh, three, a lot of people have said this is for another time period. And that's a little bit more technical of a one. Uh, a lot of people believe that this is a that Christ isn't describing something of the present, but He's describing a future kingdom and a future dispensation or time period. And so He's He's talking about the time when He will come and set up the reign of Him on earth. A lot of people believe that Christ sought to set up the kingdom. This was His inaugural speech or His big speech, but the Jews refused that, and therefore they crucified Him, and the whole plan got foiled. Uh, that may seem like a crazy idea for you, but a lot of people believe that. That Christ really was a great man with a great plan. This was in His inaugural speech, but because the Jews rejected Him, the plan got foiled. That view leaves no application for us. And it's just a historical look at the time of Christ. Besides, the theology in the Sermon on the Mount is found not just in the Sermon on the Mount, but all through the epistles and the rest of the New Testament. The theology here that Christ expresses and uses isn't exclusive to the Sermon on the Mount. We've talked about what it isn't. Let's talk about what it is. I think it's important to discuss what something isn't, but let's also talk about what is the Sermon on the Mount. What are we talking about tonight? I wish I had put this higher on your sheet, but your sheet has this part there from a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. It says this, The Sermon on the Mount is nothing but a great and grand and perfect elaboration of what our Lord called His New Commandment. His new commandment. Love one another as He has loved us. We're going to look into this and tear into this and particularly the Beatitudes and open it up and see what that means. What is it? It is outstandingly backwards from common thought. It's outstandingly different from society. I know that's not a great way to put it. I couldn't think of another way. Think of how different this is 
from what we see around us. Are you familiar with the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful. Um, blessed are those who rejoice in persecution. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. So much of the Bible is backwards though, isn't it? Think of John the Baptist. Here's a guy who has no political, religious, uh, economical power. He dresses in animal clothes. He eats honey and locusts. Uh, I mean, if you were back in the day, or if John was in today, you would fit any kind of psychological diagnosis you would want to put on him, right? A guy was wild by every stretch of the imagination. If there was ever a fire and brimstone preacher, it's probably John the Baptist. People are coming to be baptized. He says, what are you doing? What do you think you're doing here? Yet Jesus called him the greatest man who ever lived. How is that? What a backwards thought process from how we are and how we think and hopefully how we don't think. Hopefully our minds being renewed and transformed but how the world thinks. Can you imagine a modern day John the Baptist? We don't need to because we have John the Baptist and Matthew and John and Mark and Luke. But can you imagine? And Jesus says about him, he is the greatest man who ever lived. What is with that? This is so outstandingly different from common thought. In Jesus' kingdom, even the least in the kingdom are greater than John the Baptist. Two, what is the Sermon on the Mount? It's an issue of the heart. It's an issue of the heart. Like all of Christ's words, He doesn't come to bear on mere externals. He goes right for the heart, doesn't He? Now think about the questions they asked Christ. Sometimes He didn't answer with anything but a question. He wanted to drive at the issue. He always went after the heart. And the Sermon on the Mount is no different. When He says John's the greatest man... uh, when he describes John, says he's the greatest man, he's not talking about John's fashion statement at all, is he? No. He's talking about his desires, his passions, his attitude, his obedience, his covenants. His mind was set humbly to follow the course of Christ and to lay the way for the Messiah. The Sermon on the Mount's no different. The outside will only be a manifestation of a heart bent towards righteousness rather than sin, or in some cases, sin rather than righteousness. God has never been listen, God has never been impressed by mere externals. Never. And if you think about it, neither are we. Brooke and I, uh, one of our friends was kind enough to get us tickets to Beauty and the Beast play when he was at the field house and we went to that. We enjoyed it, uh, at least most of it. And uh, we went to that and there was tremendous acting. Those people do that all the time. And to get to be able to do that, to perform, that love these people perform all over, you have to be really good. Imagine if we went to that. Perhaps you've been to one of those. And what if we went up there and uh, the beast just walked around like this and read his lines like this? What's the main fellow with the gun who's going after Bell all the time? Gaston. Gaston. Imagine if Gaston wasn't his bulky, arrogant self, but he just read his lines like this from a script. No one would go to that, would they? Why? Because we can see poor acting in an instant, can't we? Well, we would recognize that. Even the untrained eye would. That's no different with God. God's not impressed with mere acting. He's not impressed with outward obedience. Those actors had to have passion and plea drummed up from within inside of them. They were passionate about what they did. They got there not from just acting, 
but from being passionate about acting. And that came across in the play. It's no different. Christ goes for the heart of the issue. God's never been impressed. Christ has never been impressed with mere externals. The Sermon on the Mount's no different. Now that we have it figured out, or at least the intent, and that's to deal with the heart, let's look at who Christ intended this message to be for. Who is the Sermon on the Mount for? I think that's always important. We'll look at a text. Who do you intend this for? Who is this for? I'm going to read you A.W. Pink's opening words to his uh, book on the Beatitudes. It says this, Opinion is much divided concerning the design, scope, and application of the Sermon on the Mount. Most commentators have seen it as an exposition of Christian ethics. Men such as the late Count Tolsty have regarded it as a setting forth of the golden rule for all men to live by. It's also what I mentioned earlier uh, that Lloyd-Jones goes by. Others have dwelt upon its dispensational bearings. We talked about that. Insisting that it belongs not to the saints of the present dispensation, but to believers of a future millennium. Two inspired statements, however, reveal its true scope. In Matthew 5, 1 and 2, we learn that Christ was teaching here His disciples. From Matthew 7, 28 and 29, it's clear that He was also addressing the great multitude of people. Thus, it is evident that this address of the Lord contains instruction for both believers and unbelievers alike. Who's this for? It's for everyone. It's for believers and it's for unbelievers. The sermon does not say live like this and you will become a Christian, but rather because you are a Christian, live like this. Or rather, this is God's standard. So who's it for? It's for you in this room tonight, sitting here. Whether you're a true believer, born again, whether you sang that, wash me, Savior, or I die from the heart, and that's true of you, whether you're yet to be reconciled to Christ and become a son or daughter of Him. That's for you. That's for you. So dig your teeth in. Learn this summer. Drink it in. What we're about to teach. What we're about to go over. Why are we going to study this? Remember, this is an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Why are we going to study what we study tonight? Why should we study and try and learn it? Because Christ died to enable us to live the Sermon on the Mount. Titus 2.14 says this, that He might purify Himself, or purify unto Himself a peculiar people, zealous, for good works. Why did Christ die? Well, at least one of the reasons is He wanted to purify Himself unto Himself a peculiar. Who's that? That's a people outstandingly different from society. A peculiar people zealous of good works. Lord, let my zeal no respite know. Why should we learn about this? Because Christ died to enable us to live it. Two, nothing shows the need of new birth like the law. Now, why does Paul say we have the law? He had to reveal sin to make us realize we're not righteous, to make us realize we need the gospel. The second reason is because nothing shows the need of a new birth like the law and the sermon. And nothing as we will see it is able to lay you so low as the law. It shows the need for new birth. Three, it promises blessing. Listen, Christian or non-Christian, you want to be blessed? We're about to find out what that word means. Do you want to be blessed? Then do these things. The whole world is in search of happiness, isn't it? Why should we study this? Because it says, you want to be blessed? Do this. What a great reason. What a great reason. Lloyd-Jones called it this, the direct road to blessing. Four, it's a good means of evangelism. So if you seek to live 
your life like the Sermon on the Mount, like Christ calls you to in the Sermon on the Mount, you will be a peculiar person. And the world will wonder, won't they? Think about it. If you're poor in spirit, if you're humble, if you're meek, if you rejoice in persecution, if you go through the Sermon on the Mount and read it, if that was your life, if you were following Christ as He lived out and fulfilled the Sermon on the Mount, man, you would look different, wouldn't you? Lord, help us to live like Christ has called us to in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a great means of evangelism. You ever do this? You ever want uh, your friends who don't know Christ to... You feel like you want them to clean up your act? Hey, clean up your act and then come to church. How backwards that is. That's how we want to deal with things is the externals, isn't it? But Christ goes right for the heart. And this Sermon on the Mount is a great means for evangelism. It's not clean up your act and come to Christ. It's come to Christ. Be born again. Repent of your sin and then He will begin to clean and cleanse and purify your life of sin and defilement as He works on your heart and convicts you of sin. As summer, we'll be looking at verses 1-10, through 10, which might be called the Christian's character. I'll read you another quote. What is, supreme, what is of supreme importance is that we must always remember that the Sermon on the Mount is like a description of character and not a code of ethics or morals. It is not to be regarded as law, a kind of new Ten Commandments, or a set of rules and regulations which are to be carried out by us, but rather is a description of what we Christians are meant to be illustrated in certain particular respects. Does that make sense to you? What's he saying? He's saying Christ didn't just come and give you a new Ten Commandments. For non-believers, this should expose the sin in their life because it is law. It's not merely an exposition of of the law, but it is that. For believers, what should this be? Not so much law as a description of your character and who you are. Often we set an antithesis, a wrong antithesis of law and grace, don't we? You ever do that? I'm not under law, I'm under grace. And you take Paul's words and twist them just a little bit. What does it mean that we're under grace? It means that God has enabled us to live like Christ. How did Christ live? He fulfilled the law. So it's not like grace and the law are somehow opposed to each other in Christendom. There's no antithesis of law and grace. Rather, because you're under grace, you seek to live and obey Christ. You have an admonition to holy living inspired by a new birth and by a passionate love for Christ. That's what marks us as believers, isn't it? Now we went Bible, Matthew, Sermon on the Mount. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. That's our text for tonight. If you're not already there, go to verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 5. We've got two verses here. It doesn't appear there's much in these verses, does it? But what we have in these two verses is going to help set and pave the way for what we have the rest of the summer. So pay attention. Okay, I'm going to read this. Actually, I'm going to start in uh, 4.23. Why don't you back up with me to 4.23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fam, so his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. 
great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And then we have this, seeing the crowds. What crowds? The crowds from Matthew 4.23. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he came, or when he sat down with his disciples, they came to him. In verse 2, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Nate, you want to pull up those pictures for me? He saw the crowds. His fame had spread. Jesus was famous, and people were coming from all over to be fed, to be healed, and Jesus sees this grand opportunity to do what? To proclaim the Sermon on the Mount. It says he'd been speaking, but not this publicly, not this largely. And he goes to a place, is up there yet? Why don't you grab the lights for me, uh, Colin? Adriel's got them for me. Uh, Brooke and I and several others from the church had an opportunity. It was, last, yeah, it was last summer to go over to Israel, and we got to see some things. And one of the places we went was the Mount of Beatitudes. I just want to help. Could you grab the windows too, Nate? Right, that white remote right there. Yeah. I just want to show you this because this is where this is on the northeastern shore of Galilee. And this is where uh, they think Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. There's a, there's a 21st century church. I don't even want to call it a church, but there's a building there that they call a church. Uh, there And there's, a, there's remains of a 4th century church to commemorate the place where Jesus preached. It's called the Mount of Beatitudes. Um, is my little clicker going to work, or can you change them for me? Okay. This is overlooking the Sea of Galilee. We're up on top of the mountain. We're looking down. Can you go another one? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They have these markers here to kind of commemorate the place. Keep rolling. Yeah. This is inside the, the church place there. Can you keep rolling? Thank you. Good. There it is again. Keep rolling again. Okay. Imagine if you can. Now, obviously, there's no roads, at least paved roads in those days. Uh, and there's no fences like these. But it, Israel was a lush place. And Jesus goes up on the mount. And He sits down. And there's crowds everywhere. And His disciples draw near to Him. And it says He sits down and He began to teach. Put yourself there. Keep rolling. Yeah, there's another picture. Roll again. That's the Sea of Galilee we're looking out on. Good. Keep rolling. Yeah. Let's look into the left there. Keep going. Yeah. There you have it. Thank you. Now, I just wanted to help bring you guys to the Sermon on the Mount. Imagine He comes and He sits down. There's people everywhere and He sits and He begins to teach. You want to grab the lights again, Adriel? Thank you. Let me read you what Matthew Henry says about this. Nor was it one of those holy mountains, nor one of the mountains on Zion, but a common mountain by which Christ would imitate imitate that there is no distinguishing of holy place now under the gospel as there was under the law, but that it is the will of God that men should pray and praise everywhere, anywhere, provided it be decent Inconvenient. Christ preached this sermon, which was an exposition of the law. Uh, Henry thinks it's merely an exposition of the law. We talked about that earlier. Upon a mountain, because upon a mountain the law was given. 
And this was also a solemn uh, sermon of the Christian law. But observe the difference. When the law was given, the Lord came down upon the mountain. Now the Lord went up into one. Then he spoke in thunder and lightning. Now a still small voice. Then the people were ordered to keep their distance. Now they are invited to draw near. A blessed change. Hashtag blessed change. He didn't say that. But uh, if you take the hashtag away, that's what he did say. What a blessed change. What a cool thing, right? You think about that. Think about the parallels God sets up for us in the Bible. There he goes up on the mountain to receive the law. He goes up on the mountain sits down. He begins to speak. There was in thunder and lightning. Now it's still a small verse, voice. He sits down. He goes up and sits down. Nowadays we stand to speak. In those days rabbis used to go. It's common for him to sit down. It says the disciples came to him. Now, not the disciples you're thinking of. It's not until Matthew 10, not that all the Gospels are in chronological order, but it's not until Matthew 10 that he selects the 12 disciples. So this is a conglomerate of lots of disciples. And they come up and they sit down because they want to hear from him. It says he opened his mouth. I said he hasn't done a whole lot until now. He said some things. He earlier said he preached in the synagogues. But now he opens his mouth. It's not just a Jewish idiom, not just a statement of the obvious, or a way, but it's a way of introducing a specially profound and a sober thought. You see this throughout Scripture. He opened his mouth. It's also used to in, uh, indicate an intimate testimony or a sharing. It'd be like this. Guys, come here, listen. Guys, come here, listen. He opened his mouth and he began to speak an intimate testimony. He didn't shout. I taught one time, uh, and I went up to, to test the mics out, and the mics were out. There's a group of 350, 400 people, and the mics were out. So I ended up shouting the whole time, just so people could hear me. Christ, there's no indication that Christ shot. In fact, if he's going to teach on a place, this is where he wants to teach. right? So his voice carries out to the people. He opens his mouth and he speaks. And when Christ speaks, it's not just anything. What Christ speaks is what we have here, at least in part. This isn't the whole sermon. But he sp- I mean, can you imagine? You don't need to, because we have it here in the text. Matthew 7, 28 and 29 describes it better than I ever could. It's when uh, Jesus finishes it up, and he says, it says, Matthew writes, When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority, not as their scribes. Imagine. Scribes used to sit down, rabbis. Everybody kind of had their own rabbi and they used to sit down and teach. This isn't just some teaching. This isn't just another day. Christ speaks with authority. Authority that I don't have, that you don't have, that we know nothing of. He sits down and speaks and proclaims. And out comes the very Word of God. Some people think he preached here for days and there was many more people at the end than when he began. It's just a slice of what we have. I don't know how long he preached, but it was really something. It was really something. Can you imagine? He, opened, he opens up his mouth and he says, Makarios, or blessed. What's this word mean? Well, you hear more about this in the coming weeks. Makarios, blessed. The word means Happy or blessed or fortunate. It wouldn't be wrong to 
translate it happy, although it probably would be in the sense of our common word, happy. This isn't some mere external emotion that Christ is talking about. He's talking about a full and a deep and a rich happy. It's usually used in the sense of a privileged recipient of divine favor. In fact, if you look at 1 Timothy 1.11, it's used of God. The whole world's on a search to be happy, aren't they? And that's something. Think about it. Everybody's out to be happy. And Christ says, listen, here's how it's done. We as conservative Christians recoil a little bit when we hear people talk about this because of the prosperity gospel, right? I don't... Whoops. I uh, I don't want to talk about... I don't know if I should be happy as a Christian. I don't know if I should believe in this uh, this fortunitude or this blessedness or this happiness. And let me say I get that. Like I understand that because I, I've observed the prosperity gospel and I watch it and I warn against it and it should be that way. But don't let that pollute your view of the text. Please don't let that view pollute the text for you this summer. Like I said, there's been so much written about this. I get, I'm going to give an example here. Here's a guy called Emmett Fox, what he wrote about the Sermon on the Mount or what somebody wrote about what he wrote about. What did did Jesus teach? Distilled from years of study and lecture, affirmed by nearly nearly a million readers over the last 50 years, Emmett Fox's answer in the Sermon on the Mount is simple. The Bible is a textbook of metaphysics. And the teaching of Jesus expresses, without dogma, a practical approach for the development of the soul and for the shaping of our lives into what we really wish them to be. For Fox, Jesus was... No sentimental dreamer, no more dealer in the empty platitudes, but the unflinching realist only a great mystic can be. I cannot be more backwards. And yet millions of people have read this commentary and gone, oh yeah, okay, Jesus was a great moral teacher, just like that fella at Costco, that poor, poor fella at Costco. I get it. I get that there's a lot of wrong stuff out there about this. Later on it says this, in his most popular work, Emmett Fox shows how to understand the true nature of divine wisdom, tap into the power of prayer, develop a completely integrated and fully expressed personality, transform negative attitudes into life-affirming beliefs, claim our divine right to the full abundance of life. He calls the Ten Commandments the master key to life, a universal guide that all matters in making life more satisfying. I get why you would be skittish. I get why you would be hesitant, but don't let that pollute your view of of the Beatitudes this summer. God never called the faith to be a monkish or a sobriety of gloom, nor is that a good witness. Hard times, yes, to be sure. There's hard times as a Christian. But don't let it dissuade you from digging in your teeth to a more full, robust happiness than the world could ever offer. Don't let it taint your view this summer. You want to know how to be blessed? Christ says, this is how. Listen. Be blessed. Closing, let me read another quote here. The first Adam was tested in a beautiful garden and failed. The last Adam was tested in a threatening wilderness and succeeded. Because the first Adam was a thief, he was cast out of paradise. But the last Adam turned to a thief on a cross and said, Today you shall be with me in paradise. The Old Testament book of the generations of Adams ends with a curse. We talked about that. The New Testament, the New Testament book of generations of Jesus Christ ends with a promise. We talked about that. 
the, or excuse me, we didn't talk about that. Matthew ends with, uh, there shall no longer be any curse. The Old Testament gave the law to show man in his misery. The New Testament gives life to show man in his bliss. What a blessed change, huh? doesn't even really describe it to say hashtag blessed change. What a blessed change. What a beautiful thing. Let's take this summer to try and find out not what merely emotional and temporary enthrallment is by the world, by our surroundings, but by the precious commands of God. Let's dig into what Christ will give us through teachers in the coming weeks. It's going to be myself this week and you next week, and then we're going to hand it off to some younger men and women who are going to expose the truth of the text for you. I I hope you'll be here to dig in. I really do. To claim to follow the Spirit, listen to this quote, to claim to follow the Spirit without obeying the letter is to be a liar. To follow the letter without following the Spirit is to be a hypocrite. To follow the Spirit in the right attitude and the letter of the law and the right action is to be a faithful child of God and a loyal subject to the King. Let us be poor in spirit, Christians. Let us be ones who mourn. Let's be gentle ones, ones who hunger and thirst for righteousness, ones who are merciful, pure in in heart, peacemakers, and ones who delight in persecution. Let's do it for our own benefit, for the benefit of others, and for the glory of our precious and wonderful King. Why don't you pray with me? Father, thank You for an opportunity to talk about You, to think about You. You've given us Your Word. You've given us Your breath recorded in print. Thank You for that. Who would we be without it? Thank You for what You've chosen to record here, what You've chosen to etch down and never be lost. God, help us to learn from it this summer. God, help us to to take it in. God, help us to remember we're in a battle. God, help us to sing with truth. God, help us to live in obedience. Help us to be happy in the full and true sense of the word. And Lord, help help us to do it for our own happiness, for the testimony of others, and most of all, for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.